We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians on where we have our conversations today. Pharmacists, particularly community pharmacists, play a significant role in encouraging people who have challenges with their health and maybe have multiple prescription medications that maintain their health status and hopefully increase their longevity and life expectancy. Obviously, a community pharmacist has a huge role to play in the engagement of the continuity of the prescription medication being taken and engaged by an Indigenous client or patient. Hi, I'm John Briggs, Managing Director at John Briggs Consultancy, and you're listening to the Pharmacy Business and Career Network Podcast. Welcome to the Pharmacy Business and Career Network Podcast, brought to you by the Pharmacy Guild of Australia, focusing on pharmacy management and ownership. The PBCN podcast supports the improvement and growth of your business performance with insights and advice from a range of industry professionals. The PBCN Podcast, supporting your journey every step of the way. For Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, Australia's colonial history is characterised by devastating land dispossession, violence and racism. Over the last half century, however, many significant steps towards reconciliation have been taken. Reconciliation is an ongoing journey that reminds us that While generations of Australians have fought hard for meaningful change, future gains are likely to take just as much, if not more effort. At its heart, reconciliation is about strengthening relationships between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and non-Indigenous peoples for the benefit of all Australians. Today, we speak with John Briggs from John Briggs Consultancy. JB Consultancy offers expertise in workshops, training, facilitation, and providing specialist guidance around Indigenous engagement and inclusion. They work with government, non-government, corporate, early years, and education sector organisations Australia-wide to provide high-quality tailored services. John Briggs has delivered over 1,100 cultural competency presentations in the last 10 years across the mining, banking, retail, early years, and education sectors. With more than 25 years' experience, John Briggs is passionate about Indigenous culture, inclusion, employment and engagement, assisting organisations to be better equipped and confident in those areas. Central to his style and service delivery are the fundamental principles of creating culturally safe learning environments and establishing trust. John Briggs is a collaborative networker and genuine expert in his field of professional speaking and facilitation. Here's John. Thanks for joining us, John. The listeners will remember that at the start of the show, you did a acknowledgement of country. And I'd love to start this with a, a conversation around why do we conduct acknowledgement of country or welcome to country at meetings and events? And what is the difference between the two? The acknowledgement of country recognises that Australia has a history that dates back 65,000 years. Uh, So when we do an acknowledgement of country, we are actually recognising that Indigenous people are the First Nations of Australia. Uh, That was also determined by the High Court of Australia on the 3rd of June 1992, which many people would know as the Mabo decision. The Native Title Act uh, was implemented following that decision and in support of that recognition by the High Court, as well as the truth that Australia has a history that relates back to First Nations cultures. We are just simply acknowledging that in the words at the start of a meeting, a presentation, it could be even at a social gathering, but it's really about following on from the encouragement to support the recognition that uh, terra nullius is not true. 
And what's the difference between an acknowledgement of country and a welcome to country? Anybody can do an acknowledgement of country, and we encourage people to think about that as one of the first steps moving forward in supporting reconciliation. Uh, a welcome to country can only be done by a descendant of the traditional owner group from the area it is delivered from, whereas anyone can do an acknowledgement anytime. And why is it significant a, a welcome to country in that an ancestor from that area conducts it? Firstly, it, it re-establishes and affirms the understanding that Aboriginal culture is still present in Australia today and that there still are many descendants from traditional owner groups in Australia. Oh, by the way, which there's approximately 250 different traditional owner groups recognised in Australia. And by doing a welcome to country, it allows the traditional owner to be recognised as a, as a traditional owner. But it's like going to someone's house, Daniel, before you walk through the door, you knock on the door, you're waiting for them to, you're acknowledging that it's their place. You're waiting for them to welcome you in. You mentioned reconciliation a couple of times in those previous answers, and we're going to dive into that topic a lot in this chat and its importance to each of us as Australians. But before we do that, can we take some time to talk about culture generally? Because it's something that is front of mind for you in your day-to-day -day work as you go out and speak to people. So I'm interested in how you see and define culture. There are many definitions of what is culture, Daniel. We all have a culture. Um, all around the world, culture is still alive today. It determines our social values, our norms, our behaviours. It allows us to determine, to determine the differences between what is right and what is wrong. Uh, there are belief systems that all cultures have. There's a lot of sameness in the framework of culture. Uh, so we always look for sameness while we explore difference uh, with other cultures. But it basically is a, a, that connection to our identity, our sense of place, where do we come from? How do we connect not just to our local area, but where do we fit in into the world scheme of things? So it's really about that understanding of somebody's uh, sense of belonging. So in that belonging, that identity, that place, that connectedness you spoke about, our origin. Can you describe some cultural beliefs linked to Indigenous cultures? So some cultural beliefs, like many cultures around the world that live under the philosophy, it takes a village to raise a child and what's mine is yours. Uh, spirituality connects us to culture. Our absolute connection to country, which is the tribal boundaries that we refer to when we acknowledge traditional owners or the group that we are connected to. So I'm a member, a proud member of the Yorta Yorta and Gunai nations in, uh, in, in Eastern Australia. And other cultural beliefs to be aware of is that Indigenous people have a, have a traditional value system that we are part of the land and we don't own the land, the land owns us. It's very interesting. And so for our audience listening in Australia, reconciliation has been a topic for some time. What exactly is reconciliation? And why is it not just important for Indigenous people, but for everyone in Australia? Firstly, reconciliation is everyone's business. Uh, one of the messages I encourage, uh, particularly in corporate Australia with my cultural competency workshops, is to send the message that Indigenous business is everyone's business. And one of the concepts of that is, is that uh, we have a strategic approach to capturing that goodwill. 
by aligning that goodwill into actions under a reconciliation action plan. Um, what we are uh, re reconciling from, and there are many definitions of reconciliation, but I go to reconciliation.org website uh, and there are some definitions there that refer to at, at its heart Reconciliation is about strengthening relationships between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and non-Indigenous peoples for the benefit of all Australians. So most people would have heard of closing the gap, and closing the gap is a formal commitment made by all Australian governments. What exactly do we mean by closing the gap? The consequences of exclusion in Australia, Daniel, are that Indigenous people were prohibited from being recognised in the Constitution up until the 27th of May 1967. That then meant that we were excluded from, you know, education and employment and integrating ourselves into the general population as Australia was establishing itself. That created a gap economically, socially, culturally, spiritually. And what we're closing the gap on are particular elements like our life expectancy or our participation in finishing a year 12 at school or employment and completing employment, not only just starting employment, but staying in employment. Uh, there are many targets under the closing the gap uh, focus for the Commonwealth Government, but quite simply the gap evolved by treating Indigenous people differently to others and the consequences of exclusion up until 1967 are still profound and are connected to today's generation. So it really is about recognising the history of exclusion, being honest with those consequences that led us to long-term welfare dependency for some of our communities and also meant that there was uh, uh, levels of racism and discrimination that were not only present uh, up until 1967, but certainly do uh, uh, present themselves in different elements of different uh, parts of Australia today. So the gap comes from being excluded, but today it's about inclusion. So we talk about inclusion through the vehicle of reconciliation action plans or strategies. And the aim there is to increase life expectancy, have more participation in education, finishing grade 12, going into academic or employment settings or both. So there are elements of closing the gap that are particular to different sectors. And I, I look forward today to further discussing how the pharmacy sector can contribute to closing the gap. So if we talk about closing the gap, without sounding too simple about it, that, that implies that there is a gap between one part of the population and another part of the population, as you explained. And you mentioned academic, finishing year 12 and moving into further study starting and staying in employment and life expectancy. Can you maybe describe what some of those gaps look like in terms of numbers and percentages and things like that? Thank you again for that question because it's important to remember that um, data speaks volumes to the way we plan and move forward. And it needs to be recognised that approximately, now Indigenous people make up approximately 3% of Australia's population today, but when we look at the national incarceration rates, we make up approximately 30% of the total incarceration rates from adult and youth detention, both male and female. Now, that's on a national scale, but if you go to different parts of Australia, particularly the Northern Territory, sometimes the youth detention rate there sits at 100%. That's clearly a gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. 
The other gap there is employment. It's estimated that approximately 25% of Indigenous populations today are unemployed, which the national rate sits around about approximately 5%. Yes, it does fluctuate, but that's a fair estimate. Um, and one of the most daunting figures that we we do uh, explore data on is the completion of suicide rates in Australia, of which there's a huge gap between the non-Indigenous and Indigenous rates in all demographical areas. So there's certainly a lot of work to do there and some very important work clearly to do there. And you mentioned you were looking forward to discussing the role pharmacists can play in closing the gap. So let's now move into that a little bit. Why are pharmacists and community pharmacies in particular important in helping to close the gap? And are there any special roles that they can play or, or maybe fill which other health professionals maybe can't? So there's two prongs to that question, Daniel. Uh, the first one is that pharmacists, particularly community pharmacists, play a significant role in encouraging people who have uh, uh, challenges with their health and maybe have multiple prescription medications that maintain their health status and hopefully increase their longevity and life expectancy. Obviously, a community pharmacist has a huge role to play in the engagement of the continuity of the prescription medication being taken and engaged by an Indigenous client or patient, um, which back to the second point of that question, means that that really is specifically a role for pharmacists. Obviously, doctors play a, a, a role in the referral by by prescribing medication, but ultimately it's the pharmacist that, uh, that executes the outcome of the prescription and has the ongoing relationship obligations and responsibilities to maximise the opportunities that are being offered under closing the gap, of which uh, the pharmacist also uh, acknowledges um, on the prescription what they call CTG in capital letters, which is acknowledging that the Indigenous patient is entitled to a, a discount of the medication under the incentive of closing the gap. Um, and that offers people the incentive, particularly in remote and rural communities who may not have a substantial relationship with their their local pharmacists for uh, many historical reasons, um, of which we'll open up on another podcast. But it really is about understanding that you know community pharmacists play a significant role in building relationships, not only with uh, Indigenous patients or clients, but also particularly with Aboriginal health services, medical centres, um, and community development organisations that can provide a link to people who may be in the community that are at risk of uh, uh, not getting the most out of their prescription medications because they may not have money to pay for them or they may just be unaware that you know they're due for a, 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 an update of their prescriptions. So we hope that the onus is not just on the client to identify that, but maybe a pharmacist can be more proactive in that space by you know, possibly doing reviews on Indigenous clients around, you know, uh, are they taking, is there evidence through the paper trails that we provide around the multiple prescription medications that an Indigenous client in their area is supposed to be taking. Uh, one of the great things that I've noticed, Daniel, in this in the pharmacy sector is the, um, and the enormous amount of goodwill shown by pharmacists, uh, community pharmacists, and right across all levels of the guilds where people go, look, I don't need to be convinced why I need to do this. Just tell me how. How can I get the best out of what I'm doing and build relationships with Indigenous communities. And we're, we're exploring solutions to that 
by building community profile templates that would sit with the local pharmacy and allow the, the pharmacists and other stakeholders there to think about how they can connect with uh, the broader uh, Indigenous community or the communities which Indigenous people live in. So you mentioned things like reviews and paper trails and building those profiles. And there's a lot of goodwill to do the right thing and help maximise the opportunities under closing the gap. And you mentioned how that's not just with the pharmacist and the Indigenous patient, but also a wide range of stakeholders. So apart from those reviews and paper trails and, and building those profiles, are there any other steps that community pharmacies can do to help achieve building and maintaining those relationships on an everyday and even a long-term basis? I'm going to uh, respond to that from a number of angles there, Daniel. Firstly, that is to complete cultural competency training, become more aware of how I can build my Indigenous toolbox, uh, which means what language do I use that is engaging, that is inspiring for an Indigenous client to want to have discussions with me that um, take the eggshells away. And one of the concepts here is to give two-way resources to pharmacists. In other words, what can a pharmacist do? But also, we also need to go back and speak to our community about the good intentions that pharmacists are, are demonstrating now by reaching out. The reaching out can only go so far. It also needs to have a take up and the take up is uh, reliant obviously on what we call the two-way interaction between the pharmacist and the Indigenous communities. So we're embarking on a journey this year of developing programs that are specifically about cultural awareness, but leading into actions that determine, uh, well, sorry, guide is a better word, not determine, but guide the pharmacist into their local community governance infrastructure so they can understand, okay, if there's a local meeting at the Aboriginal Medical Service, how can I get on the agenda to present what I'm thinking about? Um, so we really want pharmacists to leave the pharmacy and, and get out in the community. And, and, and I know that's not traditionally the space that pharmacists have been in. That's just been my observation. Uh, but we do encourage that uh, more proactive approach of which many Australians are uh, being encouraged to do now, which has been more proactive rather than reactive. And I think the listeners, that will resonate with you because over a number of different episodes, the pharmacies that have been really, really successful and and particularly those that have won awards are the ones that have gotten out of the four walls of the pharmacy and gone and engaged with the community. Now, John, you mentioned things like an Indigenous toolbox and things like language and actions that help engage with Indigenous patients. So, what is meant by providing a culturally safe environment? Uh, cultural safety has many definitions, um, Daniel. The concept of cultural safety is it's two ways. It's, it's not just about us giving lots of information on what does a pharmacist need to do. It's also how comfortable is that pharmacist to do it and to go off with the recommendations that we encourage to be ingrained into their everyday practice so it's actually no longer eventually it won't become an add-on it'll just be normal business it's what we do Uh, but look what we hope to to achieve is that cultural safety uh, is being defined as we speak uh, uh, by the uh, National Pharmacy Guild Uh, but I'm just going to read a definition that we use regularly in our cultural competency 
training sessions, uh, of which John Briggs Consultants has delivered over more than 1,100 of these presentations in the last 10 years. Um, and one of the things we, we love to do in the pharmaceutical, uh, or sorry, in the pharmacy sector is to encourage people to think about, you know, well, what is the definition of cultural safety or cultural awareness and competency and how does that relate to my role? And uh, one of the concepts here is uh, based on the Māori nurses. So we talked about New Zealand earlier, Daniel, and the Māori nurses in the mid-'80s created a definition that cultural safety and competency will lead to better health outcomes because we will be educating our colleagues, particularly our non-Indigenous colleagues, about how to best service or work with the Māori community, of which is the Indigenous community to New Zealand. So the definition I, I wish to read now, Daniel, I'm quoting now, which is the, the Māori nurses, the, the, this is the New Zealand version that was used in the mid-'80s, and I quote, cultural safety and competency. It's a set of similar behaviours attitudes and policies that come together in a system or agency and enables that system to work effectively in a health service context. It's adapting service or product delivery and policies and procedures. So what is an RAP and does each pharmacy need one? So an RAP is an acronym for a Reconciliation Action Plan. And what we hope to uh, achieve out of that is that the goodwill that is absolutely around in, in, in many Australians today, particularly when they think about, I, I want to have relationships that work and that matter with Indigenous people and communities. And I think one of the things that comes out of that, Daniel, is that a wrap is just one way of capturing that goodwill. A pharmacy doesn't particularly need one if you're a member of the Guild in your state because the Guild in each, the national uh, uh, Guild is building one as we speak. The states are considering uh, uh, connecting to that, uh, but I would like to give a quick shout out to the uh, to the National Pharmacy Guild of Queensland who've gone ahead and actually been successful enough in launching their wrap last year. And they're on this uh, amazing journey now of taking the actions under the wrap, uh, which are quite measured actions. They do have milestones or, or key uh, key dates to have the uh, actions met, of which the Queensland branch is certainly doing a, a wonderful job in this space of, of, uh, of leading that process um, around pharmacies having reconciliation action plans. But that's not to say that a local pharmacy can't do their own. It's um, obviously encouraged and absolutely would be a significant move forward to be going from a national and state-based wrap, particularly uh, into a local one that uh, might suit the needs of that local pharmacy. You mentioned that many non-Indigenous Australians are now very conscious of wanting to have meaningful relationships with Indigenous people. So broadly speaking, but particularly with a pharmacist's hat on, so outside of those four walls of the pharmacy. Why is it important for people to include and engage with Indigenous actual communities in their community and the people and the histories that there there is on offer there? Uh, it goes back to that um, concept earlier about cultural safety is two ways. And if we can start to work with Aboriginal people and not for, um, that what we're doing is we're co-designing, which, uh, which is language that's uh, encouraged to be used today, uh, particularly around engaging effectively with Indigenous communities, is building products that are co-designed. Uh, you can't co-design if you don't include. 
And so what, what we want to make sure is that people do think about engaging with Indigenous communities, people and histories by understanding firstly how business used to be done versus how business can be done. So as much as over the last you know, 30 or 40 years there's been lots of goodwill put into policy development for Indigenous Australians, quite often it's from a, a platform that doesn't always include the voice from Indigenous communities. So it's really encouraging that co-design, you know, what's the best way we can move forward together. It's a great point on the on the co-design front and elders are an important aspect of Indigenous culture. Why are elders and other community representatives really important to the engagement relationships and that partnership process and that co-design? Daniel, that's about respect. It's about the the wisdom that elders hold. It's about acknowledging that they are the gateways to our communities, our cultures and our peoples. Uh, It's the right thing to do and it also is about um, tapping into that wisdom that they hold I guess we could talk a lot about the value of elders, but it really is about uh, the first thing we acknowledge, like many cultures around the world, is recognising the knowledge that elders hold um, and share and uh, contribute to. And it also gives them validation that um, their knowledge is still relevant as they mature into their latter years. Uh, You know, I particularly like many cultures around the world that have a similar philosophy to Indigenous Australians, which is that... um, you know, becoming aged and having challenging, uh, uh, you know, elements happen to your health, whether that's physically, mentally or emotionally, is that we still value that person and we still include those those uh, those elements of that individual or that community. So it really is just the right thing to do. Is being an Indigenous elder something that just comes with age and everybody eventually becomes an elder or is it more of a a standing in a local indigenous community or nation so it's actually a bit of both there daniel and it's a great question that you raise uh, so i'm going to start off with the the, the what we might call the traditional definition of an indigenous elder which means it's not based on age it's based on knowledge and participation so in other words, if you're 25 years old in a, in a traditional Aboriginal community and you're, you've been through ceremony and initiation and you've passed all what we might call the benchmarks of wisdom, which, by the way, is a lifelong journey, but there are certain benchmarks that can be met uh, quite young in, in, a, in, a, in our culture's lives, that person can still hold that level of wisdom and be considered an elder based on their knowledge and their willingness to contribute that knowledge to the next generation. That is elder statesmanship. But one of the uh, concepts also is it, it's there's a natural element of respecting um, the age and wisdom that you naturally have as an Indigenous person by maturing into your years. So elders do have various definitions according to the community uh, and it, quite often it is about the respect for that person's age and maturity. Very interesting. So I know we encourage pharmacists to get out of the four walls of the pharmacy, but let's go back inside the pharmacy for a moment. Let's say I want to employ an Indigenous Australian in my pharmacy, and and I have in the past maybe, but sometimes I've had a bad experience. Maybe they don't turn up to work for a few days at, at a time, and in the end, I have to let them go because I do have to run a business. How can I best address that situation for everyone? This is quite a common uh, discussion that we have with uh, many corporate Australians today who are embarking on the journey of it, of Indigenous employment. 
or have had that experience you've referred to, Daniel, where they've employed someone in the past and there might have been some challenges around attendance or higher levels of absenteeism. Um, quite often when that occurs, Indigenous people have been let go. But uh, what I would simply do in a scenario like this is I would ask the pharmacist to think about, have you asked the question about why is there absenteeism and have you, have you had that conversation that allows you to understand more about is it um, the person just not turning up because they're, they're, they're not engaged or, or not, not uh, attending employment like anybody else? So in other words, is there barriers to their motivation to work? But also there are cultural matters that sometimes prevent Indigenous people from coming to work. And those cultural obligations are quite often referred to as sorry business or ceremony. Now, sorry business is the attending a funeral. Now, in a culture like ours where we have a large extended family with a low life expectancy, unfortunately, we have a lot of death. And so one of the consequences of that is, is that a lot of Indigenous people are forced to, not forced, but attend a lot of funerals because in our culture, it takes a village to raise a child and what's mine is yours, which is also about the resting of the spirit at the passing or acknowledging someone's passing and death by everybody in that village or extended family being present at the funeral. So they're the main items that get in the way. They're, they are just the main items that are quite common in regards to why people have high levels of, of absenteeism. But the solution that uh, comes about through that is to talk to Indigenous employees about their old, their obligations to culture because at some stage there does need to be considerations for the fact that as you're running a business, we need a level of reliability. We need people to stay engaged. Uh, quite often pharmacies are profit-driven businesses, so they do need to be uh, aware of also the two-way obligations that go with employment. Um, and sophisticated employers that take on the pre-employment or pre-employment engagement uh, are, are aware of the benefit of having these discussions so that it reduces the potential for absenteeism in the future. But where an employer just puts an Indigenous person into a role and, and doesn't really uh, understand the cultural obligations, you will find the example that's been provided in this question happening more than we would possibly hope for. It's such great advice because regardless of whether it's an Indigenous employee or, or somebody else, it's such great advice because we so often really do need to come from a place of understanding with so many situations. And so simply asking the questions about a situation is an amazing place to start. And the advice that you just gave them was to have a conversation about Indigenous culture with that employee, or you might have multiple Indigenous employees. When's the best time to do that? Is that during the interview, if this is something that might be front of mind, do you let them settle in and then take them out for a coffee and have a conversation? Do you wait until there's maybe a semi-issue and then come from a place of understanding and wanting to help? When's the best time to have that conversation? I think the points you've just shared there are all relevant, Daniel, but I guess ultimately you would do it in the, in the, the pre-employment stage. So some employers will do it as a, as a lead into an interview. Others might go, look, we're offering your position, but we'd like to uh, also do some further developmental training around your engagement of employment. And it takes courage for employers to do that because many employers in Australia, unfortunately, walk on eggshells when it comes to engaging the discussions that are related specifically to culture. 
But what we hope to do through two-way discussions, which is uh, simply give cultural awareness training to the employer and give pre-employment to the employee, and they align quite well because there are similar messages that go out that are, are delivered throughout those two elements. Um, and there are large retailers today that have that have done quite well in this space and can demonstrate that through their data by taking on the two-pronged approach of, look, we'll uh, we'll tell our managers what they need to know, but we'll also tell our Indigenous employees what they need to know as well. So the eggshells is a great segue into my next question. And moving back out of the four walls of the pharmacy and, and looking at the Indigenous community more broadly rather than just potentially my employees. Let's say I want to engage with my local Indigenous community more, but I am worried that I'll say the wrong thing or, or maybe I lack the confidence to just go and approach them. How can I overcome those hurdles? Because there's obviously some really big positives for everyone that can come out of that engagement and that understanding and learning and those relationships. Relationship before partnership will obviously be a, a very helpful dynamic for the goodwilled pharmacist to think about, uh, I do want to engage with my local Indigenous community, but I don't want to offend. So what we do is, uh, again, that's the value of uh, having, you know, a, a sophisticated or a skilled session in cultural awareness in, or competency training that allows the generic concept of Indigenous engagement to be a starting point but also by encouraging the pharmacist to maybe have a conversation with an elder around in our community, guys, that might be Tennant Creek, for example. So the community pharmacist in Tennant Creek could simply go and ask to talk to some of the local elders about what's the preferred language in this community? Should I say Aboriginal? Should I say Indigenous? Should I say Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander? What is the preferred language? So the one-on-one -on -one individual meeting will be far more helpful to give them a journey of discovery than just going straight out into the community and hoping um, that it goes well because that good intention unfortunately needs to be met with I guess a level of understanding of you know what am I actually engaging with and, and what are the, the preferred because we all know the power of language and the power of our word choices and that is a significant uh, uh, point of uh, interest to share with um, with pharmacists but ultimately that would be related back to and our solution to this Daniel is to give pharmacists uh, a template that is a one or two page document that allows them to be guided by the template, uh, the headings on the template to be completed before they go into the community. So in other words, one of the questions on the template will be, what are the main language groups that are in your community? Language groups meaning tribes or clans or groups of Indigenous people. So straight away, they're already doing some community profiling before they start to do a community engagement. So we encourage profile before engagement, relationship before partnership. There's been so much great advice in this short chat, John, that I kind of feel a bit dumb asking this question and asking you to almost pick the most important thing. But to round this out, what do you think is the most important message that you would like the listeners to take away from this show today? Uh, Daniel, uh, thank you for that. And it's also important to remember that um, what were you and I are doing today is simply having a conversation and education through conversation is one of the most powerful mechanisms to encourage um, particularly pharmacists but all Australians to, to work together on this space that, that, uh, that does close the gap because there is a lot of goodwill and we've used that word a lot today. 
Um, but it is about encouraging people to have simple messages instilled into their thoughts when they think about Indigenous engagement. Um, and that is what we call becoming positive disruptors. So a positive disruptor might hear something negative about Indigenous people and then all of a sudden, you know, maybe provide a bit of uh, information to that to the person they've heard that come from around, you know, do, do you know it's not okay to say that anymore? Or do you know that that's offensive? And, and, and it's not about being confronting. It's about being what we call a positive disruptor, which is just sharing some facts. So if people tell the truth, the truth always wins, regardless of how unattractive it is. And when we talk about the truth, it takes the opinion and emotion out of it because the truth is the truth. So I think when people create a set of did you know questions or fast facts, that is a very powerful way to build your Indigenous toolbox because that previous discussion we had about how can I overcome hurdles uh, or reduce the eggshells is to also show courage. And the other message I want to simply share here, Daniel, it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to get it wrong. That is a learning opportunity. I feel like we could talk about this for much longer, John, but if people want to find out more about you and the work you do, what, what can they do? Where can they go? All the W's dot johnbriggs.net.au is my website. Um, I'm also working in the digital world. I have an online module that goes for 15 to 30 minutes. Also do podcasts like we're enjoying today. Daniel, working with you on this podcast will go on a link on my website where people can hear these messages in their own time. But I think it uh, has been a privilege today to uh, have the Pharmacy Guild, the National Pharmacy Guild, open up the opportunity for John Briggs Consultancy to have the conversations, not only for the pharmacies and community pharmacists, but for all Australians to think about taking the next steps as we move into the future together. John, on behalf of the listeners, I think we all feel privileged to have spent some time listening to you talk. So thank you so much for finding some time to share your thoughts and experiences around reconciliation and cultural awareness. It's been wonderful. Thank you, Daniel. What a fantastic conversation. It's clear that community pharmacies and staff play a very important role in closing the gap, but also in building strong engagement with Indigenous communities. Community pharmacies are vital to the health and well-being of all Australians. The Guild is dedicated to exploring ways to maximise the health benefits pharmacies are able to contribute to their local communities. In 2011, the Guild established the Community Pharmacies for Rural and Indigenous Australia Advisory Group, CPRIA, to address rural and remote population health issues in general, and is also responsible for ensuring that Indigenous specific issues relevant to community pharmacy are addressed under various national health promotion and health prevention strategies across rural, remote and urban areas. For more information, you can email cpria.network at guild.org.au. As John mentioned, you can also visit www.johnbriggs.net.au to discover more information and to also explore the work that John delivers to provide specialist guidance around Indigenous engagement and inclusion. John will also be presenting as part of the Guild's Rural Pharmacy and Indigenous Health Stream at APP 2020 on the 19th of March. To register, to attend, go to appconference.com. I'm Daniel Oyston, and you've been listening to episode 39 of the PBCN Podcast. The PBCN Podcast, supporting your journey every step of the way. For more resources, to access support or advice, or to view this episode's show notes, visit guild.org.au.